I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines. Coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hello, everyone. This is Cal Rastiala, co-host of International Law Behind the Headlines, and I'm very pleased to welcome you back to another episode of the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the recent uh, airline incident involving Belarus, and I've invited onto the podcast Cameron Miles. Cameron is a barrister in London uh, with three Verilum buildings. And he has written about the the incident most recently in Lawfare uh, and is, of course, an international lawyer with a wide scope of of expertise. And so I've invited him on to talk about what uh, issues are raised. This is obviously an evolving uh, subject, evolving uh, incident or affair. We're recording this on Tuesday, Tuesday, May 25th. So I imagine things may may come to light between the time that we record this and when, when you may listen. Um, but we're going to try to give you an overview of what's happening. So Cameron, welcome onto the podcast. Thank you, Cal. Great. So maybe we could just begin with some basics. So, uh, so first of all, we have you know we have an unusual story here involving um, what some have called a state-sponsored hijacking. And so, I guess I'd be curious first: um, how would you characterize what occurred? Um, is it in fact a hijacking? What what's the right frame for understanding this? I'll call it an incident. I mean, uh, this is a very good question. Um, in layman's sense, I would definitely call a state-sponsored hijacking. As an international lawyer, um, the closest thing you could probably call is probably piracy. Um, you know, uh, piracy. You know, as 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 Doug Guilfoyle at, at the University of New South Wales tells us, piracy is not necessarily confined to non-state acts. Uh, it can also be performed by state actors, and that's probably what we're talking about here. I mean. If we were dealing with something in the law of the sea, for example, um, and somebody intercepted a ship without a good reason on high seas for doing so, that would be deemed piracy. Uh, and so that's probably the closest analogy you have here. If you're trying to get something that is not just sort of a convenient a convenient adjective noun verb, whatever, to describe what Belarus did, I mean, you can sort of start to look at the actual framework, the legal framework behind what occurred. Now, international law often gets a bad rap, um, particularly in the United States. Um, and there's a reason for that, which is that certain elements of international law are perceived to be elastic, amorphous, you know, not capable of being pinned down in clear language or subject to manipulation or convenient reinterpretation by powerful actors. And when we talk about that, we usually talk about the use of force and we talk about laws of war. Now, that's probably about 10% of international law, or I consider it to be about 10% of international law. The other 90% of international law, the law of peace, gets its job done behind the scenes, quietly, consistently, and with the buy-in and consent of a large number of states. And one of those areas, one of those regimes of the law of peace, is the regime governing international civil aviation. And that's really what's governing the situation here. Perfect. That's a great quick overview of... Uh, of some of the basics. Before we get into the specifics governing civil aviation, Montreal Convention, and so forth, just on the piracy point, so I'm imagining many listeners, even those familiar with with maritime law, would would think piracy is something that occurs on the high seas and only on the high seas. Uh, is that an incorrect assumption? 
No, no, it's not a corruption assumption, which is why the piracy analogy is imperfect. I mean, what we're talking about here really is the interception of an aircraft, effectively, or something that is just ordinarily going about its business. Um, it's imperfect because it hasn't happened in international airspace as it was, which is to say over international waters or over um, a race communist space. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about the actual act itself, then yes, it does have analogies to piracy. But you're right, Cal, it's definitely not a perfect analogy. I see, I see. Okay, that, I think that's helpful. So so let's turn to some of the other legal frameworks that are in place. So I think most of us assume uh, or know that there are a set of, of treaty and other rules governing civil aviation, which of course is a really enormous part of the global economy, or at least was, and it's it's coming back rapidly. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that fits into this and, and uh, you know, is this act something contemplated by, for example, the relevant treaty uh, instruments? Is there? I know there's some precedent for this. Maybe talk about how those precedents might affect our interpretation of this event and the like. So the story begins in 1944. And in 1944, um, the world was starting to come out of World War II. Uh, and this is really sort of the beginning of modern international law as we know it, that great fluorescence of treaty making that converted international law from kind of an ad hoc, occasional understanding of the way that states interacted with each other, the kind of thing that was, you know, sort of underpinned by the Lotus case from the PCIJ. Everything that is not expressly prohibited must be permitted. And we start to see states lay down dense, intricate networks of treaties for the regulation of international life. And one of the first things they did is that they convened uh, the 1944 Chicago Convention on International Civil Aviation, and they created the International um, Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO. That was backed by an instrument called the Chicago Convention, as I just said, which granted states the capacity of absolute sovereignty over the airspace above their territory and their territorial state. But, and, and in that scope, they gave states the ability to bring down planes that are flying over their territory. But it wasn't, it wasn't an absolutely unrestricted right. The right, they basically had, to, had the right only to sort of demand planes to land that were acting contrary to the purposes of the convention. And when they sought to land those planes, they had to do so consistently with existing rules of international law. So that's 1944. Flash forward to 1971. In 1971, we had the Montreal Convention, which you mentioned for the suppression of unlawful acts against the safety of civil aviation. 1971 was sort of the heyday of the airplane hijacking. Um, you know, you sort of had uh, Hamas, various other organisations, uh, the IRA, either bombing international aircraft or intercepting, or, and 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 yeah, not intercepting, but rather sort of having individuals placed on board those aircraft and forcing them to go to all kinds of different locations. And so, states introduced the Montreal Convention, as I said previously, and in that, in Article One of that convention, they identified a number of crimes against international civil aviation. Now, one of those crimes, and it's the important crime for present purposes, was that an individual must not communicate information that he knows to be false with respect to an aircraft 
so as to cause that aircraft to go in any particular location or to land. And on the facts as we currently understand them, that's precisely what Belarus did in this case. They dialed in the fake bomb threat, they required the plane to land in Minsk, and they removed uh, Mr. Protasevich, the dissident journalist, on the back of that. So it was really a pretense. And when you took, put those two provisions together, sorry, I beg your pardon, there is one further provision that we should probably mention, which is Article 10 of the Montreal Convention, providing that states must do everything they can to prevent offences in Article 1 from taking place. When we put those provisions together with uh, the relevant part of the Chicago Convention, Belarus acted inconsistently with international law when getting the plane to land in Minsk, and therefore they breached the Chicago Convention as well. Terrific. And so just as a factual matter, it was a report from air traffic control from from a Belarus airport, presumably, to the pilot that that's a, first that's alerted a bit, him to the that's a bit ambiguous at this stage, Cal. I mean, the fact is we know that originally it was reported that members of the Belarus secret police were on board and right. they communicated the threat to the pilot. Um, now it's apparent that perhaps individuals from the KGB, the Belarus secret police, were not on board and the threat was communicated by air traffic control. Either way, the results are the same. Interesting. And so... Uh, the reports initially also spoke of a fighter jet. Uh, is that legal? Let's put aside whether that's accurate or not, that that was a critical factor. It seems like from the latest reporting, maybe that was just extraneous. Is there any legal significance to scrambling fighter jets or using military assets in this manner? Uh, well, the Chicago Convention provides that you are allowed to effectively scramble fighter jets and intercept international um international flights. The question is whether or not those fighter jets or what have you are being used to ground a plane consistently with international law, which brings us back once again to the question of the Montreal Convention. Right, right. Okay, so so we have sort of the basic outlines of what occurred, uh, and it seems clear on the facts, at least as we know them, that there is at least one, two, probably, violations. So let's talk about what possible responses are permitted, either under the convention or more broadly under the law of state responsibility or some other set of, uh, of legal rules. So, so tell us what remedies might exist for, uh, for other states and which states would have standing to raise those. That's a really interesting question, Cal. Um, so the first point is that the legal response is already on foot. Um, what we have here is a, a sanctions regime has already been put in place by the EU. I imagine that the US is probably going to follow pretty quickly. And as you say, under the law of state responsibility, that is a lawful countermeasure that can be put in place by the EU states collectively. So we've already got that on foot. Insofar as other mechanisms are concerned, the question arises as to whether or not Belarus can be brought before an international court or tribunal. Now, the Montreal Prevent Convention provides for dispute settlement by arbitration, or if the parties cannot agree on the form of arbitration, by uh, dispute settlement before the International Court of Justice in The Hague. But Belarus was relatively clever in this respect. And when it was still the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, put in place a resolution, uh, a reservation to ICJ and arbitration jurisdiction 
under, section, under Article 14 of the Montreal Convention. Now, what they didn't do, however, is put in place a similar reservation for Article 87 of the Chicago Convention, which provides for the ICAO Council to have jurisdiction over dispute settlement. And as we discussed previously, by breaching the Montreal Convention, Belarus also breached the Chicago Convention, and so therefore ICAO has jurisdiction over any dispute that arises. And again, under Article 87 of that convention, in the event that there is further dispute, there's a right of appeal to the ICJ. So it's still entirely possible that this dispute will end up in the Hague. Now, as to the question of standing, the injured party, or at least the directly injured party in this respect, is Poland. Now, I know that everyone sort of seems to think that Ryanair is an Irish airline and therefore Ireland would automatically have standing, but I, the aircraft in question, despite being leased or owned by Ryanair, is in fact registered in Poland. So the directly injured state is Poland. But we, we have to remember that you know, so the Chicago Convention is one of the most successful international treaties of all time. And once you extract um, Poland and once you extract Belarus, you still have 191 states parties. And so what you have here is potentially a potential for an over omnis claim to be brought by any of those 191 states parties. And I think that that's, there is a good case to say that they will have standing in this particular case either to exercise countermeasures against Belarus, which is the attitude that the EU has already taken, or alternatively bring a claim against Belarus before ACAO and, of course, before the ICJ. Cameron, some commentators have pointed to uh, precedents for this, which are, I think, distinguishable on various grounds, but I'd be curious to hear your views. So, for example, one that's come up periodically is uh, Evo Morales' plane, uh, which was thought to perhaps be carrying Edward Snowden, uh, was landed in Vienna in an unexpected manner. I don't want to color what exactly happened. Um, is that a relevant precedent in your view? Are there better precedents? Uh, and how have those precedents been treated uh, in ways that might be relevant for this story? So we have to distinguish between two things here. The first is the question of whether or not you can down a plane merely because there is a wanted fugitive on board. Now, there's an argument to be had about that as to whether or not, because if you look at the relevant provision of the Chicago Convention, which is Article 3, this 2, it gives the state of overflight the right to down any plane uh, that is being used inconsistently with the Chicago Convention. And the question, therefore, is, does that give them a right to force a plane to land merely because a wanted individual is on board? But we're going to park that question for a second. What you are definitely not allowed to do under the Chicago Convention is call on a fake bomb threat for the purposes mm -hmm. of having a plane land. And that, to me, is really the distinguishable element here. Take whatever view you want as to whether or not a plane can be downed merely because there was a wanted individual on board. I think that everyone can agree that it is beyond the pale and a clear breach of the Chicago Convention by reference to the Montreal Convention for states to simply call in bomb threats. And the reason for that, the policy reason behind that is relatively simple. If, let's assume for a moment, Cal, that what happened here was that air traffic control were the ones that called in the bomb threat. In the future, if somebody is flying over Belarus and Belarusian air traffic control says you've got a bomb on board, do you believe them? 
Do you not believe them? And that's the real problem that's here. I mean, this is something that has really threatened the safety of civil aviation. And I, I'm not entirely sure that that same thing can be said in circumstances where a plane is down merely because um, a fugitive is on board. Now, I'm not taking a view on whether or not you can do that under the Chicago Convention. I'm not taking a view on whether you can't do that under the Chicago Convention. The only position I've taken here is to say that what Belarus did here was clearly unacceptable on anyone's view of how the law operates. Fair enough. Uh, but what if we simply took away the bomb threat element and let's say instead Belarus had said, oh, there's a wanted fugitive on board, you need to bring this plane down. How would that work out what would happen then? Well, I mean, the question really becomes, are you entitled to do that under the, under the, under the provisions of Article 3 this? Now, Antonio Stantacopoulos uh, and Miles Jackson in Egil Talk have written a fairly persuasive piece saying you can't do that, that it would be an abuse of those circumstances. Um, I would have to think very hard before I would commit myself to a view on that point. Uh, I am a practicing lawyer, as you know, uh, and I wouldn't want anything I, I said to be held against me in the future. Um, but put it this way, I can definitely see where Antonis and Miles are coming from. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious about why Belarus chose to take this strategy. They must have anticipated that such an egregious act, first of all, would be uh, you know, viewed negatively by many, many states, but moreover, that they're going to get the sort of blowback. I mean, maybe they didn't anticipate the sort of blowback they seem to be facing, but if they didn't, then they didn't think very hard. So it's just curious to me that they did that they did it this way rather than something more straightforward akin to the Snowden incident. Um, but I, I mean, say- I mean Ka- Kalis, that's a look, that's a very good point. I mean, I'm scratching my head about the same thing. I mean, you can at least have an argument about whether forcing a plane down because of a fugitive on board is viable. Um, but you can't have an argument about a fake bomb threat. Right, right, exactly. So, you know, either they were not thinking legally about their strategy uh, or there's something else that maybe perhaps we don't know yet. Are there other precedents that you think have any bearing on this case? Look, not to my... There are some precedents, but not in the sense that I, I cannot think of a situation in which a state has cooked up a bomb threat in order to down a plane. But one area in which there are, is precedent, I mean, some people have said that the fact that uh, Mr. Protasevich is a Belarusian national should affect the remedy that's hmm. available in this case. And... If we can just start from the position of the law of remedies, I mean, Horshoff Factory is very clear on this point. What is required is for Belarus to put the situation that currently exists back in the situation that would have existed had it not behaved illegally. And that means that Mr. Protasevich and indeed, and indeed his, his partner, Sofia um, Sepega, who let's not also forget was also detained, a Russian national, their obligation under Horshoff Factory reparation analysis is to put those two individuals back in the plane, in plane, and allow them to continue to do this. Now, some people said that because Mr. Percentage is a Belarusian national, that that doesn't necessarily obtain, but it does, because, as I said before, Horsham Factory is very clear. Poland, or any other state for that matter, requires reparation in that circumstance, and reparation can only be achieved if Mr. Percentage is put back on a plane and, and, and sent back to Vilnius. Now, 
precisely the situation occurred in relation to the Arctic Sunrise case between the Netherlands and Russia. Now, if you or your listeners recall, in 2013, what effectively happened in that case was a Greenpeace Dutch-flagged vessel was arrested in the exclusive economic zone of Russia by um, by Russian Spetsnaz forces, effectively, and then towed into Murmansk. And the 30 individuals on board, the so-called Arctic 30, were then detained in Russian prison on charges of hooliganism, of all things. I, I think it probably translates a bit more impressively into Russian. Now, notwithstanding the fact that certain Russian nationals were part of the Arctic 30, ITLOS, in ordering provisional measures, did not blink. They said, nope, you have to restore the situation to what it was previously, which means that, you know, with the collateral of a very large bond paid by the Netherlands, um, all individuals and the Arctic sunrise have to be allowed to leave Russian territory. And as I said previously, the fact that certain members of the Arctic 30 were Russian nationals didn't matter a job. Full reparation means full reparation. So if there's any precedent that bears on the case, that is the one that comes to mind for me. Interesting. Thank you. Uh, this is obviously a hot topic. I'm sure we will come back to this uh, in the coming weeks with more more developments, I'm sure, emerging. Um, but Cameron, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate having you. It's a pleasure, Cal. Thank you very much. Great. Take care. Bye.